Hello, listeners. My name is Dean, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point Podcast. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Peter L. Sherry. Peter is the Vice Chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase and a member of the firm's Operating Committee. He obtained his bachelor's from the American University and his JD from the American University Washington College of Law. Peter spent nearly a decade in public service. He was nominated by President Clinton and confirmed by the United States Senate as the U.S. Special Trade Ambassador and one of the lead U.S. negotiators on China's entry into the World Trade Organization. Before joining J.P. Morgan Chase in 2008, Peter was partner, chairman of government and global trade practice, and managing partner at the Washington, D.C. office of Mayor Brown. In 2015, he was named head of corporate responsibility and chairman of Mid-Atlantic Region at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he led the firm's expansion in the Mid-Atlantic Region, as well as the firm's 200 million economic development investment in the revitalization of Detroit, following the city's file for bankruptcy, the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. In 2021, Peter became vice chairman, where he now oversees the global public policy functions and the U.S. cross-business leadership teams of J.P. Morgan Chase. He also manages the J.P. Morgan International Council and Morgan Health, a business division focused on improving the quality and equity of employer-sponsored healthcare in the U.S. Peter co-founded the Greater Washington Partnership, an alliance of business, community, and education leaders. Business Insider named Peter as one of the 10 people in the country transforming how we think about capitalism, and Washington Life magazine called him one of the most influential people in the U.S. capital. The Washington Business Journal recognized him as one of the top business executives in the Washington, D.C. region. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Dean? I'm doing great as well. Thank you, Peter. And for starters, can you tell us a bit more about your role as the vice chairman at J.P. Morgan Chase? Yeah, so I oversee uh, a number of functions, some of them sort of corporate and regulatory, then a couple of business functions. I've been with the firm now a little over 15 years and run what we call corporate responsibility, which is all of our public policy, philanthropy, how we engage with communities, trying to address some of the big challenges. But then a lot of my focus now is on a business we started last year around healthcare called Morgan Health looking at how do we improve the delivery of healthcare to our employees and frankly to half the country who gets their healthcare through their employers. And I also oversee on the business side what we call our market leadership teams. These are the people in each of our major markets throughout the United States who essentially drive our business growth in those markets. So I've got a, I've got a number of different responsibilities, which is always interesting for me. Thank you for sharing that. And let's start by going back to the early years of your career. What was your motivation for joining public services? And can you share some of the key highlights from your nine-year journey, particularly your roles as the chief of staff for the U.S. Trade Representative and the U.S. Department of Commerce? So I grew up in a family that service was a very big part of who we were, politics and service. So we were very, my, my parents were very politically active. We grew up in New York. And there was always a sense of responsibility to, to serve the community. I always assumed that that meant, as you would call public service, that meant government service. And I spent a good part of the 80s after college uh, working in politics. Most of the 90s I spent in government. I worked on Capitol Hill for about five years working as the chief of staff for a senator and then as the staff director for community environment and public works 
And then I joined President Clinton's administration in 1995, working mostly in international trade areas. I was one of the negotiators on China's entry into the World Trade Organization and did a lot of the um, a lot of the international trade work. So when I left government in 2000, at this point I had, I was married, I had two kids, we had a mortgage. I thought I was sort of done with my public service. And I went and practiced law for a while. And in 2007, I was asked by a friend if I'd be willing to sit down and talk with Jamie Dimon, who had been CEO of JP Morgan Chase for about a year and a half at that point. I met him in New York and he spent a great deal of time talking about the role that companies in the private sector needs to play in service to the public, in supporting communities and addressing many of the problems. And remember, this is 2007, so this is before the financial crisis. And I had never really heard a CEO talk like this before. I had never really thought about the idea that you can actually serve the public, not just through a private sector institution, but through a bank. And so I became more and more intrigued and, and joined the firm about a year later, actually in the height of the financial crisis. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And talking about a financial crisis, you joined JP Morgan Chase in 2008. So what was it like pivoting to the financial services industry right during the financial crisis? And what was the key rationale behind it? And how did the financial crisis really affect your role at the firm when you first started? So it was, it was a challenging time. I mean, luckily for JP Morgan, we were one of the few big banks that did not need to be bailed out. And JP Morgan became a bit of what we call a port in the storm that we were actually in a position, we bought Bear Stearns, we acquired Washington Mutual. So the government turned to JP Morgan. And so for me, it was on one hand, having to protect the bank, our employees, our shareholders and what we do. But on the other hand, how, did, how could we play a role in helping to stabilize financial sector. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the experiences that was so meaningful in a sense for me was in the early days. And I came into JP Morgan not knowing a whole lot about banking. And Jamie Dimon, our CEO, was organizing, was basically running the firm and all the key players in, in a conference room and at one point. And as we were sitting there, Jamie Dimon, our CEO, said, buy them all. Literally committed a billion dollars to buy all the bonds of Illinois to show confidence in, in the system. And it was obviously quite risky, but the riskier, the riskier thing for the system was that a state like Illinois would go bankrupt. And so being in a place during the financial crisis that you had a leadership team that thought about not just how do we protect our own bottom line, but how do we actually play a role in stabilizing the broader financial system? That was, that was an incredible education experience for me and really set the tone for much of my time and career at JP Morgan. For sure. And thank you for sharing that story in particular. And fast forward to today, you've been with the firm for more than 16 years now. Can you share some of the highlights of your experience at the firm? And how did your understanding of your role and your vision for the firm change with each of the roles you held? So it was really after the financial crisis in 2011. I come in originally to lead government relations and lead all our engagement with governments around the world. My boss actually left to go become President Obama's chief of staff. And I was asked to take on this broader role of leading corporate responsibility. And this is around 2011, 2012. And 
our CEO, Jamie Diamond, said, I really want to rethink how we do this. We give away a lot of money as a firm. We're very philanthropic. We're very charitable. But it's not really clear that we're having a lot of impact. And he said, I want you to look at it. And so we spent a lot of time over the course of nearly a year really analyzing what we call, what people call social responsibility. I don't like calling it social responsibility because I think this is ultimately business responsibility. But how, how do we play this coming out of the financial crisis? We probably did a hundred different things an inch deep. And we realized as you looked at a lot of the communities, you had a lot of common economic challenges coming out of crisis. We made a decision back in 2012 to really just focus our attention on the handful of areas that we thought could be really meaningful in the communities in terms of bringing change and creating opportunity for a lot of people who have felt left out of the system and particularly given the economic crisis. And so about a year after that, Jamie asked me to go to Detroit and see if there's anything we could do to help there. And with, and with the experience of kind of rebuilding how we thought about corporate responsibility, going into a city that had just entered bankruptcy, the largest, the largest municipal bankruptcy in the history of the United States, unemployment was over 20%. There were 120,000 abandoned homes. And he said, let's see how we can help. And, and this was very defining because we went in and we spent about six months and identified a number of areas. We ended up making a $100 million investment at the time. And let's take this chance. And you look at it now, 10 years later, unemployment is at its lowest levels in 25 years. And I think going back to the financial crisis, the, the, the lesson has been that a private institution like a JP Morgan Chase and, and any private institution has resources and skills and capabilities that can really bring to bear to solve big economic and social challenges around the world. And, and we have a responsibility to use those, those assets in a meaningful way. And now, as I mentioned, I'm taking some of the learnings of that and seeing how we can apply it to a you know, challenging issue like healthcare. For sure, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. And now officially, let's shift our focus to JP Morgan Chase and your experiences at the firm. To the start okay. of the section, JP Morgan Chase is known as the fortress balance sheet bank, withstanding financial shocks while having great flexibility in deal making. What does this really mean for the firm? And how did the firm achieve this reputation and maintain it year after year? I think what it really means is how we manage risk. Well, we live in a very risky world, right? And today's risks are much more geopolitical. But in the, back in the 2000s, the mortgage crisis really didn't hit us as much as it hit other banks because we're very cognizant of how we use our balance sheet. And it's not that we don't take risks. Yeah, that's, bank, that's what banks do. Banks take risk in lending money. But we're very cognizant of the, of the potential pitfalls. And so J.P. Morgan got out of a lot of those risky mortgage products very early. We, Matt, we're very conscious of what's going on in the world and how it can impact us. And listen, we have a recent lesson. We spent a lot of time thinking about interest rates. We have a huge impact. And so when there were banks just a few months ago said they were surprised by interest rates, a lot of our reactions, wait, your job is not to be surprised. You don't have to predict, but you can't be surprised. And so we, we want to make sure we stress test constantly we want to make sure that we're in a position that if there are shocks to the financial system, whether it's a 2009 type financial crisis or if it's an interest rate difference, we are prepared for that. Our view is 
we can't predict the weather, but we're gonna be prepared for any outcomes. And that creates a very strong balance sheet and that creates the kind of safety I think a lot of our clients and customers want. There's a term flight to safety, particularly when things are kind of shaky around the world. And so we can withstand a lot of different shocks and we hold enough capital to have those shocks, but it also means that we, we have the capital that we can make investments in communities, but even the, listen, I, I, the point I make, and I know we're talking about the balance sheet, the investments we made are, are ultimately, I would argue, designed to support the business. We, we've in, we invested over the last 10 years, $200 million in Detroit. So it is this idea that if we invest in communities, that is in the long-term interests of our shareholders, that helps support a fortress balance sheet. Thank you for that perspective. And finally, talking about the Detroit uh, initiative, you led JP Morgan's $200 million investment in Detroit, which was, like you said about, in the middle of the largest municipal bankruptcy in the U.S. history. The initiative was so successful that Detroit became a model for urban renewal, and the virtual call center model became one of the case studies used for uh, such initiatives. And how did the firm approach this initiative at first? And how did you hope it will impact the local community and the bank? Yeah. So we'd never done anything like this before. And it was kind of out of the blue that Jamie Diamond called me one day and said, I want you to go to Detroit and see how we can help. And it was, it was a really, those four were, how can we help? Those four words, I think, are quite important because we didn't go in you know, we're the arrogant Wall Street bankers and we're going to tell you how to fix your problems. We literally went in and said, to ask the question, are there areas that we can help? Now, people had a lot of ideas, but we also had to determine what are the areas where we think we could be the most impactful. And I talked a little bit about that around housing, around small business, around neighborhood development, and we understood where we had our strengths understanding what we're good at and understanding what we're not good at. And when we sort of compiled a list, we went and we talked to business leaders, community leaders, political leaders. And over time, we did a lot of analysis. We came up with four or five key areas. There were areas that we could be helpful. And that has become the model. I think one of the things that often challenges students studying the economy and business often, we're always we're often captured by the way we've always done things. But one of the things we saw during COVID was a lot of jobs that actually could be done from home. Could we hire people in an area, set them up with computers and all the equipment and have them do some jobs from home? And so we started, so we're going to hire 30 people in Detroit to take customer service calls. So this is for people who have a credit card or a debit card or a checking account, something's wrong, and they need to call someone to get it fixed. And we started about a year and a half ago wildly successful the fact is we got people really committed very talented and the their performance the production in terms of how many calls they can manage is off the charts and the customer satisfaction they're actually beating some of our traditional call centers in terms of their performance metrics and so initially we said we do 30 we now have 100 and we're going to probably keep growing that and, and a few months ago, we opened a similar call center in Baltimore. And so one of the lessons here is, okay, we have to be creative and adaptive, but there is a lot of talent. There are really, really talented people 
sitting in communities that are often overlooked. And we're going to probably continue to hire people there. So it's a great lesson. Uh, and they've been important partnerships with the mayors of, of Baltimore and the mayor of Detroit to really help us find the right people. These are great models that hopefully we can replicate in other cities around the world. For sure. Thank you for those insights. And shifting gears to some of the financial sides of the firm, the turbulence in the financial market in 2022 and 2023 has led to a bumpy ride for the financial services firms. So how did JP Morgan navigate the high rate, high uncertainty involvement in the past two years? So we have people who watch the potential for, for interest rates to go up and we plan accordingly. And we make sure that we're putting enough capital away and we make sure we're putting enough loan loss reserves away. And we are constantly trying to understand what's going on outside the four walls of JP Morgan Chase. And so that's, that's kind of how we do our thing. That's what, when you have a fortress balance sheet, as you asked about before, that's what we can do. For sure. And that's definitely a unique perspective. And what is the perspective on the outlook ahead? What are the trends that JP Morgan Chase is looking at right now? And which areas of focus are the firm working towards? What goals yeah, or projects I, are you particularly excited uh, about the firm's future? So the, the biggest trends we're looking at are geopolitical. Does the Russia-Ukraine war end in stalemate? Does it continue the impact on global oil prices? China obviously is a big area of focus. What happens there in terms of China's relationships, in terms of its economy and the tensions with the U.S.? Just this week, we're looking very carefully at what ha what's happening in the Suez Canal in terms of shipping and its costs on the economy. So we, we are spending time understanding what is going on around the world and the potential that that has for the economy, for our clients, for the cost of borrowing. And that's what clients look for to JP Morgan for to help understand how do we navigate through these challenging times. For sure. That makes sense. And finally, turning the attention to our audience, what advice and insights would you give to those who are just starting their careers? Fortunately, I have a 24-year-old son and a 26-year-old son who are starting their careers. I'll give you the advice I give them. It's most important, the most important advice is just to relax. You don't need, if someone had said to me when I was 20, what are you, like 25, your mid-20s, late-20s? I just turned 20 this year. You just turned 20. Okay, so if someone had said to me, when I was 20 or when I was 30 or even when I was 45, that I'd be working at a bank doing what I'm doing, you might as well have told me I'd be sitting on the moon. I mean, there's just, there was nothing in my background or experience or interests that would suggest. And so particularly when you're starting careers, don't, don't have a, don't have your five-year plan and your 10-year plan. Like take things as they come, be open to different opportunities. For a long time, I never really, thought about working on Capitol Hill, and then I end up as a chief of staff to a senator. I never really thought about international issues, and I end up working on international issues. And so I, the thing I would say to young people is take it easy. You just you also have to own your own. I think there are too many young people, and I, and I, and I, I'm, I say this to my own kids, don't worry about what I think or your mom thinks, right? You got to own your journey. And I think there are too many young people like this is my parents' expectations and this is what everyone else is doing. And at, at the end of the day, you have to decide who you are and what you want to be and what makes you happy. 
And I think there's too much focus on whether it's social media or whatever, just pressure on this is what everyone else is doing. The most important thing I say to people, and, I, and I've really sort of held this any any job I've had, I've worked in, I've worked on Capitol Hill, I've worked in a law firm, I've worked in this company. The most important thing is to figure out what you enjoy doing. And then to find a group of people you enjoy working with, who share your values and you get, you, you like, and then everything else will take care of itself. Titles, money, and all that kind of stuff. I think there were a lot of, I think there's a lot more pressure right now for people of your generation. Enjoy the ride. It's an incredible, like the changes that are happening in the world, what technology is doing, it's in many ways, it's a much smaller world. The idea that people, you said you were in London last week, now you're back home in Vancouver. The fact that people have the opportunity to do so many different things, have so many different careers. When my father, so going back two generations, the idea was you go work for one company when you're after college and that's it. You can have a lot of different careers. Even I tell people in JP Morgan Chase, you can have 10 different careers over a lifetime. So you you get to try a lot of different things, and particularly when you're young, throw some long balls. It's harder to do those things later on. So just in, in, enjoy the ride, enjoy the moment, and just look at look at what things have to offer you, and just be open to new ideas. For sure. Thank you for those inspiring advice and your time here today to share your amazing insights with us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode. Stay tuned for more content.